We're sharing stories about why cities are great and how they can work better. Your host is Ryan Holywell, and this is The Urban Edge, produced by Rice University's Kinder Institute for Urban Research. That's right. This is The Urban Edge Podcast. I'm Ryan Holywell, and I am joined in the studio by two of the Kinder Institute's best and brightest. On my left, I have Kyle Shelton. He's the Institute's Director of Strategic Partnerships and one of our experts on affordable housing issues here in Houston. And to my right, I have Kinder Institute staff writer Leah Binkovitz, who is also an expert on affordable housing issues and has been writing about the topic extensively for our Urban Edge blog. Thank you both for joining me here in the studio. Thanks for having us. I guess I just got a promotion. Yeah, expert. expert. I think you're an expert. So we're talking today about affordable housing in Houston, and this has become a really hot topic here in the region very, very quickly. We'll get into the numbers uh, in just a bit, but uh, the whole the whole issue uh, kind of came to a head earlier this year when the Federal Housing and Urban Development uh, Department uh, issued a pretty scathing report about the city of Houston that alleged that Houston was violating the Civil Rights Act uh, through the procedures it, it used to determine the location of affordable housing. And, and HUD even went as far as to say that Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner's decision to nix uh, a very high-profile project in an upscale part of town was based in part on racially motivated uh, opposition from local residents. So it's a hot topic in Houston, very controversial. We've been talking about it very often at the Kinder Institute. Um, hoping we can start off by talking to you, Kyle. Maybe just quantify the the extent of this challenge for us. You've done some research uh, about really just how expensive it is uh, for, for people to find a place to live in Houston, which hasn't always been the case. But what are your thoughts? How, how, how do we sort of wrap our heads around this issue? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a really important question because that's kind of the basis around which we can have the rest of the discussion about how to, as a region, how to solve that issue and where which levers to push and which ways to help families. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to come at it. It's You could look at it from sort of the average rent of how HUD HUD would define sort of what the cost of an average rent for a two-bedroom apartment would be, which is right around $950 in the Houston area, um, which is still well out of the means for a lot of working-class families and families whose primary uh, earners are wage wage earners. So I was going to say a, a lot of people might say, "Wow, you know, $950 for a two-bedroom, what a deal!" But but in a place where uh, many workers are are still making minimum wage. Um, Texas minimum wage, of course, the same as the federal minimum wage that that can actually be out of reach. Mm-hmm, exactly, and and if you if you think about it in terms of what um, the Housing and Urban Development Department does, which is uh, to break it down by what they call cost burden. So, basically, any financial expert or any um, housing specialist or bank will tell you that you should not be spending more than thirty percent of your income on housing um, as a household uh, for that to be kind of like a healthy f- threshold for your family spending. Um, and so for somebody who's making minimum wage to afford that $950 a month uh, unit, they basically have to work two and a half jobs to get the income that would re- allow them to not spend more than 30% of their income on rent, right? So there's a lot of num- there's a lot of number to think through there, but basically the gist is for somebody who's who's making $725 an hour to be able to 
spend an appropriate amount of their income at their household level on housing. They they more or less have to work two full-time jobs. 100 hours a week. Yeah. So spend uh, all of your money uh, on housing or or work yourself to the uh, point of exhaustion. Yeah, exactly. And and there's kind of the other then the other way to come into that is to try to quantify simply the number of people who need housing and and there it's a little tricky because there are so many ways that we could slice it. We could be thinking how are we housing maybe the most vulnerable populations, right? So Houston has already undertaken a really comprehensive homelessness effort, right? And, and it has been renewed recently by the mayor. Um, and so you could do that. You could target single women-headed households. You know, you could you could look at a special population like that. Or you can, again, kind of broaden it to think, let's look at these cost-burdened homes and particularly the extremely cost-burdened homes, so families that are spending over 50% of their income, and there's more than 100,000 households in the city of Houston that qualify um, for by that distinction, um, and we don't have anywhere near that number of public subsidies existing for those families. So the majority of that population is working to find their own housing without any form of to- public Totally assistance. outside the, the safety right, net system. right. right. So, Leah, you had a chance to uh, attend the affordable housing event that the Kinder Institute hosted earlier this month. Lots of interesting speakers, uh, lots of interesting discussion about myths about affordable housing. Uh, I know you talked to a lot of the experts who attended that uh, that conference. Tell me about kind of what you heard from them, what sort of you know, perhaps promising solutions are uh, are being discussed to, to sort of deal with this, this crunch in Houston. Yeah, so it was a, a great day. Uh, thanks to Kyle for helping to set that up. But I think to start with the co- common misconceptions, you can actually go back to the letter from HUD, which points out that a lot of these um, projects receive the same sorts of criticism. So people think uh, uh, if you concentrate low-income families, that's going to mean um, increased crime. It's going to bring traffic, crowding to the schools, lower the property values. And there's kind of an image that goes along with uh, that multifamily housing of just sort of this big, not well-maintained, generic thing plopped into a neighborhood um, without really regard to the the fabric of that neighborhood. And of course, you know, the research uh, can pretty soundly put all of those myths to rest. Um, property values, for example, everything that I've seen um, it's it's not a big impact. And in some studies, I think it even increases, um, depending on how it's done. But um, crime also seems tenuously linked at, at best. Um, it, it's usually if a neighborhood is already experiencing some sort of decline in another regard, um, it doesn't have to do specifically with a project coming in like that. Um, and then I, I think getting at who's actually benefiting from these programs, um, Tori Gunsoli of the Houston Housing Authority made a good point that, um, first of all, most people are not sort of staying in um, public housing. So he, he would represent the, the public housing aspect um, as opposed to, say, the projects that are built using the low-income housing tax credit, which is slightly different. But um, most people are not, you know, they're not staying their entire life. They're staying, I think he said the average stay was seven years. Um, so... That, that other myth of sort of just building generation after generation of dependence, that's, that doesn't seem to be the case here. Um, and he said, I think more than half, they're going to um, be working. So there are some folks who, who can't work, so they're collecting disability or that sort of thing. And, and we certainly want to help that population, right? Um, 
But for those who can, usually they are. That's part of the requirement often of getting this sort of assistance. Um, and on top of that, some of the biggest employers in the area, I was pretty surprised by this, of folks who end up um, either, I think, using vouchers or in the public housing um, system that Houston Housing Authority runs, that the biggest employers, number one was Walmart, and number two was actually the Houston Independent School District. So these are these are folks already in your community. This isn't sort of like outside people coming in. And so to really reframe and understand that affordable housing benefits your community. I think these, that's these are the, that's hard. These are the people who are working in your kid's school. They're the people who are selling you groceries. These aren't uh, uh, the other. These are these are people you're seeing uh, or, or maybe your kids are seeing every day. Right. And, and to some extent, when you look at the numbers of who's cost burden, affordability is a struggle for everyone. So to be a little more understanding of, of what that really means and, and what it means to provide affordable housing in your city. So in terms of solutions, I think there were a lot of great things brought up in the last panel of the day, particularly by Heather Way um, out of UT Austin, um, the School of Law there. She um, talked about there are some common myths in Texas that the state really makes any sort of um, sort of proactive approach difficult. For example, the state has banned inclusionary zoning, but that only applies to um, developers making single-family homes, which means that they can't require those developers to set aside a certain percentage as um, affordable housing. But you know, the city could, for example, um, require that of multifamily housing developers. Um, so that is a tool that's available. And to to some degree, I think you know cities cities in Texas can work on a case-by-case basis, but I don't know how much we've seen of that. Um, Austin has a homestead preservation district that they finally got going after some uh, back and forth on that, but that's another tool um, that's available. And then right here in Houston, I know groups, for example, in Third Ward are trying to organize community land trusts um, and other other options like that to try to kind of keep that ownership within the community and then to then make sure that that's affordable to, to folks already living there. Kyle, is this is this a, a new problem that Houston is trying to wrap its hands around, or or has this been been around forever? It's unfortunately very far from new. Um, no, I think Houston and and most other major American cities, I mean, pretty much forever have struggled to house predominantly its low income populations. Um, I would say it has certainly accelerated if we look at it historically after World War One, and then again after World War Two, as more and more people moved from rural areas to cities and it was kind of it people cities began to grapple with it earnestly and using federal and state powers really after World War Two um, as part of the New Deal and then the Great Society um, and so it is it is not a new problem um, and finding these solutions um, has taken a long time and and none of them are, there is no single solution to it. And I think the same thing applies to just the conversation, right? So the event that we co-hosted with LISC and uh, CSH in, in early fe- in mid-February was, you know, n- the, the middle or the first third of this conversation that's going to continue to go on for a long time. Um, and the Kinder Institute is kind of hoping to participate in that and, and help continue to build momentum that a lot of great advocates and service providers and um, the public agencies who have been working on this for literally decades have have been t- 
trying to build and and use it as an opportunity to kind of continue to work with leadership at the city and the county and work with residents throughout the city and the county to say what are what are the ways that we can bring housing to benefit these communities and benefit all the people who need it. So I I know you often talk to uh, people in City Hall, people in the affordable housing community, uh, you know, subsequent to this very controversial uh, HUD finding, uh, is there any sense that Houston might be changing its uh, its approach in response to this uh, this latest controversy? What 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 are what are each of you hearing? Because I know this is a topic you've written about as well, Leah. So I think one of the things that we're seeing here is that Mayor Turner is very committed to the idea that. Um, all of our housing and all of our investment should not be put into what are called high opportunity areas, which is a, a HUD-defined space, um, which typically is a area that has um, elementary school scores and, and other school scores of above average, um, higher, usually, I believe it's now in the top quartile of income, so uh, on average, a very high income in the area. And the idea there, and a lot of what the research in housing impact shows, is that if you can move um, lower income families into areas where those types of opportunities uh, exist, that on the whole, on the in the long term, those families' prospects are better than if they had stayed in a typically underserved community. Um, and what the mayor and many other people, and it's a really important debate for Houston and other cities to have, are saying is, well, we we get that and we think that there's there is a way to support that effort and to move some families into those areas, but we also want to be making sure that we're supporting all of our communities, right? And and not simply classifying some areas as, well, you all have to get out of here. Like the only way any of you are going to succeed is if you come out of this underserved neighborhood. Um, and part of why there is problems in those neighborhoods is that they have been historically underserved, right? So it's it's not quite, it's kind of like the misconceptions of who's living and using public housing and affordable housing tools it's not a problem of their own making and a oh, and lot of and it's sort of a chicken and the egg problem right yeah well and a lot of the a lot of the communities that are saying we want a variety of services not just not just affordable housing are also saying we want to stay in our communities right and so that's where um, it seems like mayor Tur- turner is coming from and where a lot of really passionate advocates in the city are saying let's think about how we can do this in a multi-pronged way where some of these projects and some of these initiatives might be geared towards high opportunity areas. Some might be geared towards strengthening um, underserved communities and bringing more services to them. Um, And some might allow us to do a little bit of both. And I I suppose the broader issue, however, is uh, aside from the debate about where we should put this affordable housing, there's simply not enough affordable housing anywhere. I think it's also, as as Kyle was referencing, uh, important to note that within the moving to opportunity research, um, there are, there are mixed results. So it seems to work best if the families are able to move when the children are younger. The effects aren't as clear or necessarily positive for kids when they're older. It's kind of more dislocating. So there are definite um, concerns, and and I think that that is like you said, worth debating and worth thinking about. I think one way to really see um, the commitment from the city is to see what happens with a complete communities concept, because it is going to require, if we really want to say that we can provide affordable housing in historically underserved neighborhoods, um, it it can't just be that. We have to also work on improving schools and transit access and job opportunities. 
Um, so we have to make sure that all those pieces are coming together. And we've had some talk of that from Mayor Turner, but I think there's more uh, yet to be seen. How optimistic are, are either of you? What conversation do you think we'll be having in Houston 20 years from now? Will we have figured this out a little bit more or is this always going to be a, a pressure point in our community? I mean, I think, yeah, it, it will always be a pressure point because people will always have differing opinions about their communities and their neighborhoods and their own needs for their families, right? And so this is something that is deeply personal for a lot of families and every family um, and is, I think, a conversation and a, and a debate that is always going to exist in one form or another. Um, the optimism that I feel is around a lot of this great momentum that, again, the Institute is just kind of joining now um, to, to think about what are some of the ways that we can have innovation and innovative solutions to these issues. And like you said a second ago, um, there aren't there is not enough public money and there will not be enough public money to pay for this, um, at least not through the systems that we have now. And so Houston and all of our peer cities have to really start thinking, okay, how are we leveraging public and private funding? How can we think about working with developers to get to start chipping away at some of the needs that we have here? It's not just going to be a public solution. Um, and I think what I'm optimistic about is that it seems that we are in a place where a lot of those solutions can really be um, weighed for the first time and and with a mayor who is committed to thinking through those. And as Leah said, I think that the action after that is really the important part. But we're at least at the stage where we can really say, what what can we do and what should we do? I think from a sort of existential theoretical standpoint, there are always going to be um, discussions, debates about who has a right to the city and what that really looks like. Um, I think, for example, the fact that we don't consider housing as a right the way many other countries do, that automatically means that this is going to continue to be a conversation um, and a continue to be a, a problem, I would say. And when I think about areas of optimism, uh, I look to things like the Emancipation Economic Development Council, and which is doing all this great work in Third Ward, and really seeing that um, community-driven uh, work and approach to this is pretty inspiring because, like Kyle said, it's going to take more than federal city action um, and funding. We're going to need a really invested uh, belief that people do have a right to the city and they have a right to stay in their community, um, however that looks. So I think that there are signs of optimism. Another thing that I've been thinking about is sort of this we seem to increasingly, and maybe this is too theoretical, so I apologize, but um, we seem to increasingly be debating what public goods we actually believe are worth funding and fighting for. So in Texas, for example, the um, school choice issue, the idea of, of vouchers so that kids can attend um, private or, or you know, uh, non-traditional public schools, I think that's an example of sort of a fractured understanding of what we what space we share and what's worth um, providing as a public good. And I think that extends into the housing housing atmosphere as well. Well, this has been a, a really enlightening conversation. I, I appreciate both of you coming into the studio. And before we go, uh, Leah, why don't you plug your event you have coming up in just a few weeks? Oh, yeah, please come. So I'm going to be moderating a panel. Thanks for letting me do that, Ryan. Um, <laughs> and it's going to continue on the conversation that um, came out of the symposium. So touching on a lot of the same affordable housing issues. And it's going to feature um, 
a sort of a range of, of experts. We've got a reporter from The Chronicle, someone from a housing advocacy group. And um, we've also got Tom McClasland from the uh, city housing department. So that should be a great conversation. That's going to be March 21st at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. And you can go to our website, kinder.rice.edu to RSVP for this free event. Thank you both again for joining me. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at RiceKinderInst, that's I-N-S-T, like Institute. And of course, you can follow our Urban Edge blog at KinderUrbanEdge.com. Thanks again. That's all for today.